Hi, this is Joe Bunazar, and, and with Impact Basketball, we're really excited to partner with Coaching You Live and Coach uh, Brendan Fair and Kevin Eastman with our certification program. We've put together an online program for player development, uh, over 17 hours of video that we feel will really change the way players are developed and, and be very, very helpful to coaches, trainers, parents all over the world. So really excited to partner with Coaching You Live. Uh, we've, we've put a special deal together with Coaching You Live to provide a discount code of Coaching You Live entered in our promo code, all lowercase, Coaching You Live at our website, impactbball.com, impactbball.com. If you click on Get Certified, and you can go right to the page to get signed up, enter that Coaching You Live code, and you will receive the discount. But really excited. It's a great program. I think that it's going to change the way players are developed. That's been our mission since we started uh, training players 18 years ago, and it continues to be our mission today. Now we're sharing this knowledge for the first time with coaches all over the world. Welcome to another edition of Coaching You Podcast with the coach, Brendan Sir and our faculty member of Coaching You Live and dear friend, of Kevin and myself, Jay Billis. Welcome, my friend. Thank you, Brendan. I, I'm, I hope as a faculty member I have tenure because yeah. I, I would be the first to be fired. No, no, you, no. Well, you know this program. Uh, you know, uh, we usually have a different sponsor, but we we got a request for a special sponsor for this particular podcast is the NC2A. So they are sponsoring <laughs> this podcast because they just feel such a deep commitment that you share. As a faculty member and a tenured one, and a dean and a dean at coaching you, uh, all of your ideas. Uh, I, you know, I know every all of our members. You know, you know they, you know, and listeners, uh, you know, have you know still we still get comments on you know your other podcasts with us and the way you shared ideas and about your book toughness and stuff. But now, you've really come out as one of the leading people. You know, talking about. Really, students' rights, uh, amateurism, professionalism, basketball in general. What allow, you know? I know your platform at ESPN allows you to do this, but what prompts you to go to where you go on this these issues? Boy, that's a good question. You know, it it, it probably started when I was in college. I was a, a, a student member back in the mid '80s of the NCAA's Long Range Planning Committee. And I got let behind the curtain to see how the sausage was made. And uh, I had some some concerns then that I voiced, but they were not well received. I mean, it was not a time uh, in the in the association's history where uh, you could speak up and people would be um, uh, interested in what you had to say. There was a there was a party line, uh, I think, back then. And. You know, the NCAA, Brendan, as you know, is full of great people. I mean, I have zero mm -hmm. problems with any of the people. Right. Uh, it, they're just policy differences that, that people have. And, and But back then, I think, especially when you were in college and, you know, you're a player, uh, you, you knew the, the stance that got rewarded. And so I probably, even though I voiced some concerns in meetings, was more of a party line guy publicly because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you got patted on the head and told you were a good boy when you did all that. But I think the, the thing that changed for me was when I, I got into broadcasting and I was, you know, quick to be, to offer sort of criticism or my thoughts on players, coaches, officials, things like that. But, uh, I stayed away from policy issues and I started thinking, why, why am I doing that? Why can't I give my opinion on this too? And a combination, I think, of, uh, college game day starting where we had more time to discuss the issues of the day. 
and then also uh, having the, the medium of Twitter where you could comment on issues or share an article and, and get your thoughts out there without ha- being constrained by you know, having to be on a show or something like that. Uh, th- that's, wh- that's where things kind of, for me, changed a little bit with, with the platform. And, you know, th- there's so many, as you know, there's so many moving parts now with all the lawsuits and, and th- things are changing quickly, so there's a lot more to talk about. And I think that, that's where, that's where the difference lies. Did you, was your, your background as a student at Duke, which I just think is one of the, I've always thought is one of the great schools in our country and the world, and and your education as a law student becoming a, you know, bar member, uh, does that also enter into the way you think in a, such a logical way? Because all of your arguments are so darn logical. Is that part of the training or is that natural? I, I think it's part of it that I, I learned a different way of thinking uh, when I went to law school, and I, you know I worked nine, ten years full time as a trial lawyer. Right. So putting together arguments in, in what you hope is a coherent fashion in order to, to uh, advocate or, or convince uh, a third party decision maker, which is what any listener would be, uh, that your position is the right one. But I, I always try to get out, you know, the other side and make sure I'm respectful of it because there, there are a lot of smart people that are really well-intentioned that see things differently than perhaps I do. Uh, but I think when, you know, we've been at this, and we being, you know, sort of college yeah. sports for 105, 110 years now, and, uh, and the arguments are all the same on, on one side of it. But I think the circumstances around everything have changed. I mean, you know, you hear this all the time too. That that you know, even coaches they'll say, hey, you know, I liked it better in the old days when guys stayed four years. They were fully invested in winning. Uh, you know, all the stuff, all the cliches that coaches may use. But I never hear any coach say, but I really want to go back to the old days of what I got paid back then too. Mm. Uh, <laughs> the, the, we're in a we're in a multi billion dollar business now, and everything has changed. Uh, and I think the demands on the athlete have changed. But they haven't. Nothing has changed in the way the athlete is is treated. Whether it's uh, and maybe the transfer issue is the one that to me is is the most stark. You know, take away just the idea of of, of compensation for a player and that it's capped at a scholarship. But the idea we hear now that you know players are uh, they're into instant gratification. If they don't get exactly what they want, they transfer. And you think, well, geez, you know, isn't that the way the rest of the world works? That uh, if you want a player. To, to remain at your school, make it attractive for him or her to stay. That, you know, if you have an, an unpaid amateur student and they finish a season, you know, I'm not talking about somebody who leaves in the middle of the year and wants to be eligible right away, but if they leave at the end of a season, haven't they fulfilled every obligation they had to the coach and the school? Uh, because, you know, you see players getting dumped off of rosters all the time. It's not an epidemic, but it happens all the time. But if a player leaves, all of a sudden that player, uh, his or her question, uh, motives are questioned. And I've never been a big fan of that, that uh, if you're, if you're going to have what is essentially a non-compete provision for a non-employee uh, where, where the, the school or the coach has say over where, uh, where the player can go and receive aid and things like that, I've never thought that was the right thing. And also, as someone pointed out to me recently, uh, player A wants to transfer he transfers, and then his scholarship that he vacates will be used. So if you're using his scholarship for a player to play immediately, why shouldn't he be able to 
play immediately. I'm not yeah, leaving exactly you at a disadvantage. Right. I'm not yeah, leaving you exactly at a disadvantage. Right. If I didn't use it because it was uh, August 30th and there were no players available, I can understand that, you know. But if we're doing it in the spring and you can replace me, then I should be able to play, you know, which is, I think, fair, reasonable business concept, you know. But, you know, let's talk about NCAA issues that or things that, you know, come on, you know, your list of things that are questionable and or debatable. Let's put it that way. Let, discussion items. What are what are those items that you think need to be discussed in a good forum? Well, there are so many. Uh, one on the on the governance. This show side. is only eight hours. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, on the governance side, things are changing so rapidly. Uh, I, I do think that at some point we're going to bump up against the the fact that you know this is a multi billion dollar business, and in, in, especially in, in football and men's basketball, and that we're going to have to we're going to have to at some point look at, at what I would call sports specific governance that. Uh, football and basketball oper- operate on on a different plane than other sports, yeah. and uh, to have those governed differently so that schools can do you know basically have autonomy over what they're doing. That you know nobody tells these schools whether they can have a hospital or not, or whether they can uh, you know what what sort of programs they have to have relative to another school, or how they can travel, what they can pay their coaches, what they can spend on facilities. But we we have so many rules to to deal with this mythical level playing field, most of which have to do with the athlete, uh, and and the athlete is I think by all accounts with recruiting uh, issues and and the rest, we we all seem to acknowledge the athlete is a valuable asset, and so but it's an asset that is not compensated beyond a scholarship. And now they're they're getting into a stipend and things like that, but they're still referring to the stipend as part of a scholarship package. So I think having sports-specific governance where each institution can do what they see fit with regard to their their programs and we're not sort of over-regulating things that don't have anything to do with actual competition – and the other thing, Brendan, that I think is is of vital importance on the basketball side. You know, I, I don't know anything about football. I'm a casual fan, but uh, the way I look at basketball, I think we we have we as a sport uh, on the college level have done a, a really poor job of administering the game over the years. That, as you know, everything you know, so much has changed in the landscape of the game over the last thirty plus years. Uh, and college basketball really hasn't changed at all, and we haven't kept up with the way the rest of the world is administering its game and, and playing it. Uh, wh- and whether you want to say, okay, it's the 35-second shot clock. You know, we're, we're, men's college basketball is the slowest game in the world by shot clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, international basketball for years now, since 2000, I think it is, has, has had a 24-second clock. They had a 30-second clock for 40 years before that. The NBA's had a 24-second clock since the 50s. Uh, women's college basketball has had a, a 30-second clock since the 70s, if you go back to AIAW, and we're still at 35. Uh, we can't seem to change that. We, can, we haven't widened the lane. We haven't moved the three-point line out to the international distance. Uh, we're still the only game in the world that doesn't have four quarters, that we, we, we are wedded to two halves like Moses carried it down from Mount Sinai on a couple of tablets. And uh, none of it makes to my judgment, logical sense. Yeah. We just have a – we've got a structure that won't allow us to change with deliberate speed, and we've got coaches 
that are on, and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in coaches, but we have coaches on the, uh, the rules committee from Division Three, Division Two, II, Division One, and that doesn't make any sense to me. To me, that's the equivalent of if we were deciding on a highway speed limit, that we would have uh, the voting members would be uh, truck drivers, car drivers, golf court cart drivers, skateboarders, and bicyclists. You wouldn't do that because otherwise we'd all be driving 15 miles an hour because we, we don't want the golf carts to be in any danger. That doesn't make any sense to me. And, but that's the way we do it in, in basketball, and it's uh, we're behind, and our game is really showing it. You speak cor- to corporations all over the country uh, on leadership, on team building, and frankly one of the biggest issues in leadership nowadays is change, the ability for a company to change. The coaches in our game that we both love, um, they don't, uh, for some reason, they don't want to change. They they almost, like, it's it's like they're telling me I'm of a different religion or I'm a, you know, different political persuasion. If if I want to encourage change, I, I said, you know, a month ago, if, if all of our coaches were working uh, for Apple, we never would have had an iPhone invented. You know, they would have said, no, let's keep this old, this thing, this rotary one's pretty good. It's working good, you know. They just don't seem to do that. Why Why don't coaches change? Why don't they? Jim Delaney even mentioned it when you guys did a show. They just push back from it. Why do you think that is? Well, I do think there's a mentality, as you mentioned, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But yeah. by the same token, you know, that, that cliche or that saying, whatever whatever you want to call it, you know, nobody ever said if it isn't broke, don't maintain it, or if it isn't broke, don't improve it. And we've not we've not done that. And I, I do think change is difficult for everyone. Uh, yeah. we, we seem to want uh, data on everything. And it, just for example, when we uh, in the college game, when we first put the the charge circle in the restricted arc, the NBA already had it at four feet. And we were reluctant to put it at the NBA distance because there were a lot of people that felt, well, if first of all, we don't have any data that four feet is the right distance, but if we put it at four feet, it's really hard to move it back if we don't think that's the right place for it. And my my perspective was we have reams of data because the NBA uses it. You know, that's a lot of data. And we also have data in the international game. But, uh, you know, there's no data that it doesn't work at four feet. And the whole point of it was to reduce the amount of collisions in front of the rim and exchange those collisions in front of the rim for confrontations at the rim, to block a shot, to knock the ball away, to challenge a shot. And so we put it at three feet. Uh, it made some impact, but not as much as we had hoped. And now the movement is to put it at four feet. And, like, why didn't we do that at the beginning? There was no reason not to. Um, but there, with the coaches in charge, I think – I think when you have the coaches in charge of the rules committee, when they have current competitive interests at stake, yes. there are so many that want to have every option available that if they feel like they don't have t- as much talent as another coach, they want to be able to manage the game in order to try to balance that out. So if they can reduce the amount of possessions by ho- essentially holding the ball, they want to be able to do that. Uh, and I think most coaches, and I don't think you'd, you'd see this as much on the NBA level, but most coaches look at it, as if they're ahead all the time, you know that that uh, when somebody says, "Hey, let, let's do what the NBA does," and, and toward the end of a game, let's uh, when there's timeout after a defensive rebound, you can move the ball up to mid court, and people don't want to do that. 
And a lot of coaches don't want to do that. And I think they're looking at it instead of globally what's best for the game. They're looking at, I'm usually ahead at the end of the game. I don't want my opponent to be able to move it up to half court. Make them inbounded at the baseline and have to come up against my defense. And, uh, uh, so there, there are a lot of variables that go into it, but I think our coaches are so good, they would adapt to whatever rules we put in. They do, I think they would do a heck of a job, mm-hmm. but, uh, we've got a game that I think in the, at the college level, and this is not true of everybody, but I think there are a number of coaches that are, uh, uh, Overcoaching is maybe the wrong way to put it because it has a negative connotation. But I feel like the game's kind of getting strangled to death, uh, uh, where every dribble is coached, and uh, and I'm not sure that's that's it may be good for that particular team or that particular coach, but I'm not sure it's good for the game uh, overall. What about the concept of I'm a huge believer in you know having been in the NBA game that the you know. Whether you're Chuck Daly or if, if Coach K was coaching in the NBA, he'd be magnificent because it's not about him; it's about your players. And I I don't see that same attitude uh, it, with college coaches. They're worried about their job security, et cetera. Whereas we really should be focused, and all the rules should be focused about what did a player, what's going to make the players better, happier, more productive, et cetera. No one's asking the players what they would like. I guarantee you, 99% of players would rather play with a 24-second clock. There's no doubt in my mind. You know, I mean, none in my mind either. Yeah, and and, you know, I'm not, I'm not as hung up on on whether the players have a say as much as I am just the idea that we have to do what's best for the the global game, Uh, and I don't mean the game worldwide, but just uh, you know, college basketball in general. That yeah. uh, you know, this is a game that we're selling. That that it, it, the fan interest is really important. And how can we? I don't know how we can sit back and say, "Hey, look, everything's great." When we've had a forty-year, I think it's a forty-year trend where scoring has been dropping. Yeah. And we've had a couple years here and there where it's kind of ticked up, but overall, it's a it's a it's a downward trend for the last forty years. And I think there's a. Uh, it's a troubling thing for me. At least I'm troubled by it. I don't lose sleep over it, but just the idea that we keep blaming the players. And we say, well, the players aren't as fundamentally sound as they used to be, and now they just play AAU basketball, and oh my God, you know, they don't value winning anymore. And I don't believe that for one second. I, I, I acknowledge that in college there aren't as many older players that are of the highest caliber because they leave earlier, but the way I see it, the 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 average player coming out of high school is vastly superior skill wise from a competitive standpoint uh, their ability level than they were 20 years ago Not even and close. if i, I were to stand up and yep. say geez, Brendan, you know, you wouldn't believe it now. Today's coaches don't don't know, you know, they're not as good as mm-hmm. the coaches of 30 years ago. They don't they, they have no feel, they don't know what they're doing. Uh the coaches were so much better years ago. They're they're you know, coaches would come after me with torches and pitchforks, they'd be so upset. And they'd be right to do that. Sure. But when we say it about players, it seems like all the coaches nod their heads. Yep, the players aren't as good. Look, look what we have to work with. I mean, the players are are terrific. Uh we just need to unleash them and let them play. And we need to, it's not all about the clock. You know, we need to have a freedom of movement initiative, much like the NBA did years ago. Get, yep. uh, stop this clutching and grabbing that we've got in college where the, the pendulum has swung far too far in favor of the defense and allow the offense to play again. And if we do all those things together in a comprehensive plan, our game will be off the charts good. 
totally agree. If you had your uh, wish list of four, five, six, seven, or eight, eight items that you know suggested suggested things that you would like in a perfect world, if you were uh, in charge with no committee, you just say, "Here's things I would like to see." Give me some examples. Obviously, the clock was one. The clock is one. You know what I would do, Brendan? Because I, I'm not a huge fan of the piecemeal fashion that we tend to do this, that, that because of the political nature of this, uh, people will say, look, we can't bite off more than we can chew in this. Let's be realistic and practical. We can probably only get the clock and, uh, uh, and you know, one other thing this year. Um, so, But we can't widen the lane. We can't do this. can't do this. If we try to do all these things, we're not going to get it. Well, my my uh, suggestion would be let's adopt FIBA's rules, and if there are certain rules within the FIBA rule book that we don't like, we can back out those rules rather than try to add this, this, and this over the next ten year period because that's too long of a I think that's too long of a process. So totally I would adopt agree. The FIBA, yeah, yeah, I would adopt the FIBA rule book because all these players, all of our best players, play international basketball and they do wonderfully well. The rest of the world is playing with these rules, and uh, and they, the, the game is wonderful. And we praise the European player, for example, for being so skilled and knowing how to play. Well, they play with a 24-second clock and a 22-foot three-point line and a 16-foot lane and all that stuff. So and I would they're do very that well coached, et cetera. Yeah. Exactly. They're very well coached, and they, they're big guys playing the perimeter. They're little guys can run down the post. They, they, they can do all kinds of things. So I would I would start there. But then the rest of it would be structural, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. I would I would hire the officials as employees, uh, whether you got all the, the big conferences together and they pooled their resources and hired the officials, I would have them salaried employees uh, okay. with benefits and they could be that way they could be held accountable, not in a way that assesses blame, but one that, where we could say, Here's what you're mandated to do and if you don't do it uh, you're going to be suspended, fined, or fired, or all three. And uh, in that way, the, the 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 officials will no longer be, in my judgment, beholden to the coaches because you know right now the officials take so much guff from the coaches. I can't believe it. That mm-hmm. doesn't happen in the NBA. They will ring those guys up quickly in the NBA. In college, they're afraid to. If they need to be supported by the structure that says you will do this, and if any coach gives you a hard time, we will support you when you tee them up and or throw them out. And, uh, and that way they can call the game the way they're supposed to. Uh, and I think that would really help with all this freedom of movement stuff. And I do think we need a, a very targeted uh, freedom of movement initiative, very much like the NBA did it. And once we get that, I think the game will take off. Uh, because right now, as you know, uh, and I think we agree on this, that you know, defense in college is basically organized fouling, that, that yes. coaches are teaching their players to foul because they know that, that the referees are only going to call an average of 19 per game per team. And so if we foul 26 times, they're only going to call 19 of them, so let's foul. And mm-hmm. that's, what, that's what they're doing, foul them with the chest, body them up in the post, do this, you know, all those things, arm bars on the perimeter, uh, grabbing cutters, chucking cutters as they go through the lane. All you have to do is, is you know, sh- uh, shooters coming off a screen. All you have to do is grab them for a second, and you throw off the timing of the play, and you can really, you can really take a shooter out of it. And that's what's happening in college, and it's really, I think, it's hurting flow, and it's, uh, it's making it really difficult for teams to, to, to run good offense. Uh, 
because the defense has become the dominant force in, in college basketball, and it's not an attractive way to play. Changing uh, courses, uh, how was it for you this year to take over uh, as the lead analyst for ESPN? I thought you were terrific. Well, that's kind of you. I don't, you know, I think anybody in in any job, you're always, you know, pleased when your your bosses think you're doing a good job, and I'm I'm happy about that. It didn't change. Nothing changed for me. It didn't change yeah. the way I approached my job. And you know, it's funny. Uh, this is this is probably true of of all of us in our our jobs. You know, your coaching career, and and for me, um, I don't think I've ever been happier than I was when I was doing the Atlantic Ten. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, when Skip Prosser was at Xavier and Jimmy Barron yeah. was at, uh, at St. Bonaventure and you had Al Skinner at Rhode Island had, had all these, these terrific coaches and, and really fun teams to watch that played a great style. And, uh, and I felt like that was my beat and, and I enjoyed every minute of that. Um, I'm not, I'm not any less happy now, but that was a really fun time for me. And the job is the same no matter what the game is, no matter who's playing it. It seems like it's more important when there are more eyeballs on it, but I haven't changed the way I've approached it or, or done the job. It's just more people seem to notice. But uh, th- this year was like like most years was really fun. But you know, I think what made it uh, a lot of fun uh, this year was you know we had even though the game there, there are some issues with with the game that need to be remedied. You know, having Kentucky going for an undefeated season and and having uh, a really good Wisconsin team and Arizona being so good and uh, and having Duke uh, uh, being so good, and then getting better at the end of the year. Uh, you know, if you'd if you'd said maybe a month and a half before the end of the season, you looked at their defensive numbers, you'd go, no team that's that's ranked 55th in defense can win the title. And then at the end of the year, they're ranked in the top five. I mean, they, they made that uh, grand of an improvement over their last month and a half. Uh, it was really fun to watch. And for me, and this may be this may be a little bit of bias coming through, but I was after Duke had won the, the the title this year. I heard Coach K say, I think it was in a press conference, but I don't remember exactly. But he had said, you know what? This has been this has been my favorite year, and this has been my favorite team. Yeah, and for you know, for a, a former player of his, you know, I think that could go either way. You could say you could be kind of insulted and say, hey, what about my team, or something like that. I thought it was one of the coolest things I'd ever heard that a, a guy who's coached 40 years can have his favorite year when he's 60 whatever I don't even know how old he is 67 years old and he's had his best year his favorite year uh his favorite team and I was really moved by that I thought you know what that is that's what I would wish for all of us is that you know, at our ages, we could have our best year, and uh, that 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 really made a big impact on me. And I I loved hearing it, and I think about it often. That 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 you know, even a guy like Coach K that's had so much success can have can have the time of his life uh, at this stage of his career. I, I thought it was awesome. You made a great comment. Um, you know, that last Final Four weekend, pre and post game. Uh, which I thought was just brilliant on Mike, and that was regarding that when this guy coached me in the 80s, he was terrific, but he's even better. He keeps getting better when he, when Jay Williams had him. He was better than when he coached me, and then and when he coached Gandhill, you know, and right on through the lines years till right now, 
he's better than he's ever been. I thought that was brilliant. I thought that you know, was it's, so it's cool. It's funny. I mean, I, I think when, when people talk about um, uh, friends of theirs or people in their business, you know, you, you say, like a guy that's risen to the heights that, that Coach K has risen to, you, you hear the compliment, and people mean it as a compliment by saying he's the same guy he he, he uh, he's the same guy that he was 30 years ago. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think his value system is the same, uh, and in the same sort of core principles are the same. But he's so much better now than when I played for him. It's it's not close. And I, look, I played for a great coach in the 80s. Like I thought he was the. I mean, I chose to play for him. I thought he was the best. Yeah. But uh, the guys that are playing for him now are playing for a, a far better coach than I played for, and I think that's great. Um, I, you know, that's as it should be, that a, a guy keeps getting better, and uh, a guy like Coach K that keeps getting better, keeps working, not thinking that he knows it all, um, spending time uh, studying the game and international basketball and all these things, and he listens to other people when you would think that, that the rest of the game would, you know, be sitting at the, the feet of the master listening to him. And he's not, you know, he's not one of these guys that's in love with the sound of his own voice. He listens to other people. And, uh, and you know, it's a, it, to me, it's a great object lesson that it doesn't matter how successful you are and how many times you've been around the block. Um, if you're, you know, if you're passionate about what you're doing and you are really engaged in it, you can't help but get better. And he's uh, he's really done that. It's it's been a great lesson, I think, not only for me but uh, but for for all of us. And he maintains that growth mindset to constantly keep improving and getting better. And that's what we ask of our players. That's what we ask of fellow coaches. And that's uh, that's why he is so special. And I think we all would agree, the USA basketball experience, being our national team coach, I think has invigorated him. But more importantly. It's now given him this platform to continue to learn and even teach the game, not just for Duke, but throughout the, our country. Now where our NBA players look and seek him out for advice. That, I think, is fantastic. I do, too. I think it's great. The, the, only, the only sort of, and it's not a concern, it's just a hope. The only thing that I hope that we we're cognizant of is you know however many years it's been now since he he took over you know a dozen years or so you know when when Jerry Colangelo took over USA Basketball as it's it's essentially its CEO or chairman uh, the the narrative was the, the rest of the world has caught up you know that 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 uh, after the Dream Team you know the rest of the world caught up to us and it was seen as as we're not as you know we're not as good now that 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 we're going to have to scratch and claw for everything i do think you always have to scratch and claw no matter what but uh you know now that that there's been so much success with usa basketball it seems like we're just kind of saying well well our players are better and i do think our players are better but that's not the reason we've been so successful i mean the reason is we've got a We've got a structure in place and a mm-hmm. program in place that, that, you know, you give Jerry Colangelo uh, and Coach K the lion's share of credit for. Um, but that structure and that program is, is what has set this up for the players to be able to, to perform at their best. And without that structure, we would still be just putting out a team of all-stars and, and asking them to, you know, let their talent go win it. And I, I think we've got more than just the player's talent now. And I hope people don't lose sight of that, that, that it, it takes way more than just putting a collection of players out there. Uh, it requires a, a, a very thoughtful plan 
that's executed over time and that you have to have, like even the guys that aren't on the team in a given year have put in a ton of, of valuable work and contribution uh, in the player pool. And, uh, and, and it's, it's an amazing program that we've got, and it's something we can all be proud of, and I think it's something that's elevated the game in, in our country, but, uh, but I think worldwide as well. And, and, but I, I hope we don't lose sight of the fact that this program is, uh, is really vital to the success of everything. Well, I think, you know, you, I remember when uh, when Chuck, uh, Coach K, Lenny Wilkins, PJ, when we had the original Dream Team, they said to Chuck, uh, as coaches, they had no selection of talent. It was David Gavitt's group and the commissioner, et cetera. And we had 11 NBA players plus, I hate Christian Leitner. No. <laughs> I love Christian Leitner. He branded himself so well. I love it. But he, so Christian's on the team. And John Stockton breaks his leg, and we can't replace him because we had nothing. We had no pool of players. And now that whole identity, we named the team a year and a half in advance. (laughs) Guess what? There were better players in our league by the time the Olympics rolled around. The best guys weren't on the team. Poor Larry Bird had hurt himself, if you remember, Mm -hmm. so he barely could play. Uh, So... Now I think with the system, the structure that they have, I think now you have players that are hungry. They're fighting to make a team for the first time in their life, some of these guys. <laughs> and you know what? Here's a, here's a little trivia. Think about the players that were cut from this year's team, right? I think John mm-hmm. Wall was one. I think, you know, Damian Lillard might have been one, right? I mean, he was. Phenomenal players. Phenomenal yeah, it's players. amazing. That's and you've great. got players. Yeah, exactly. And you've got players now – where you know, cool may be the wrong word, but but it's fashionable to play USA basketball again. It's it's a, it's something the players want to do. They want to represent their country and have that feeling and and go through the process. And now you've got young players that are yes. you know in their teens and like we we hold the United States holds every gold medal on every level of basketball. And so to have players in the pipeline early that get used to playing for USA Basketball, and they want to continue and play, you know, keep moving up. Uh, you know, Don Showalter, who you know does so well, has done an amazing job with the, at the younger younger level. Billy Donovan, Shaka Smart, and Mark Few has been, been uh, very uh, influential in all that, have coached the kind of the, the 18 and under teams, the 18U teams, and have had incredible success, and there's been continuity there that has been uh, been incredibly helpful in the USA basketball brand and just having this kind of uh you know powerful um you know this powerful program that always puts our best foot forward for the game and and for our you know sort of the US game and you know Brendan we we haven't had a player that's that's had a problem internationally there there's been no international incident there's been no okay. nobody's misbehaved you don't even have guys late I mean, you know, the idea that, that you could go, you could have these senior national teams that have, you know, sort of the stereo, the stereotype mm-hmm. of the NBA player that's the, the yeah. corporation unto himself, those guys are never late. They're not late for a meeting. They're not late for a bus. They're not late for anything. And they, they conduct themselves as professionals in the, in the best sense of the word. And it's, uh, I, think, I think a lot of people can wear these, you know, whatever T-shirts they may have for USA Basketball. I know I wear it all the time. And, and there's a there's a tremendous point of pride in that now, that uh, that I'm I'm really grateful for. Well, we have a lot of pride every time you join us, and uh, we can't thank you enough, Kevin and I. 
just uh, love having you with us and uh, you're you're incredible for our game but you're incredible for just people to hear you and to teach them uh, everything about game and life so Jay have a terrific as Kevin calls it not off season but on season uh, where you continue to learn and share as you always do and uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you soon well, Brendan, thank you, and, and uh, honestly, thank you for everything you do for the game because I, I hope your listeners know how much you put into not only not only teaching players because you do a tremendous job of that, but your t- your your teaching or coaching of coaches has made an enormous difference in the game. Like our, our coaches are better uh, year after year because of the work that you and Kevin Eastman do, not just teaching players but but teaching our coaches and that that's that's made a tremendous impact on the game thanks so much